You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Isaiah, for reading. Wonderful job. All right. I want to uh, start out my message this morning with a hypothetical question. What would happen if we asked 20 well-known and highly skilled authors, you know, whether it's people like Stephen King or uh, James Patterson or J.K. Rowling or poets like Maya Angelou or Margaret Atwood, all these people, 20 authors, and then we asked each of them to write one chapter of the same novel while only giving them just like a vague idea of the story and setting. So they each have to write one chapter, 20 chapters, one each. How do we think that book would turn out? Not very good, right? My, my guess is that as talented as these authors are, the book as a whole would just be utter nonsense, right? We, we can easily surmise that there'd be no congruence between chapter and chapter. There'd be random characters who have no connection or relationship to characters from previous chapters. There'd be absolutely no coherent storyline or overarching purpose to the book. And even if each author was given the plot or the themes or was made aware of the characters in previous chapters, we'd still find that as a whole narrative, it, it would be overflowing with plot holes, unfinished and unanswered storylines, and characters doing things out of character, and so on and so forth. The list goes on. Ultimately, it would be a 20-chapter book that wouldn't make any sense at all. It would be a random mess. Agreed? Yeah. Now, let's say, though, that by a one in a trillion something chance, that somehow this book did make sense and it came together as this literary masterpiece. If that occurred, we'd really have no choice but to define it as miraculous, wouldn't we? Yeah. And this is where we enter the territory of a book that stands completely on its own in this category. We know what it is. 
It's the Bible. The Bible is, is nothing short of miraculous. It's why scholars and theologians call it divinely inspired, or what the Bible itself calls God-breathed. Because the only explanation is that while it was definitely written by humans, the ultimate author must be God himself. Let, let's, let's put it in perspective. So the Bible contains 66 books. It's written over a period of about 1,500 years by approximately 35 to 40 unique authors in primarily three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And all the authors had distinctive literary styles, diverse backgrounds, varying emotions, ages, and and lived in different contexts. And yet, amazingly, it tells one coherent, correlated, and unified story of God's redemptive plan for humanity and the world, which all points to and is centered around Jesus Christ, beginning from creation to eternity. I want, I want to show you this, this diagram. It's been going around the internet lately, but it actually came around about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, uh, you can hardly see it, unfortunately. We need a new bulb in our projector, I guess. But uh, basically what, what it's showing is these like, colorful arcs that are going back and forth, right? You can, can you kind of see that? Okay. So, so this is an arc diagram. It was created by uh, Chris Harrison and Christoph Romhild, a couple of pastors. And um, it, it de- what, what it's depicting is 63,779 congruent cross-references in Scripture. I want to say that 63,779 cross-references. And if you don't know what a cross-reference is, it's like, it's like a hy- hyperlink, right? It's, it's when the text depicts or refers to another part of the text, right? So when, when you know, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or whatever. So... Um, that's what's happening right here. And the, and the bar at the bottom, the, the gray bar at the bottom, is just showing the, the books of the Bible and alternating colors so you can tell the difference between which books are which. So starting out in Genesis, ending in Revelation. And um, so you can see every time that, that the Bible quotes itself or refers back to itself, um, that's the connection. 63,779 connections, cross-references. And I, I know a lot of people these days like to point out uh, the few apparent contradictions in Scripture, but then they completely gloss over the fact that there, again, is 63,779 connections, cross-references. This literary unity, 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years, 35 to 40 different authors, all of this stuff, this literary unity is an impossibility without God. The Bible is without the Word of God. Last week in, in our new summer series, we, we discussed the, the importance of reading the Bible, and then we discussed, we gave just some practical tips on how to make it a priority and how to make it a habit in, in your daily rhythms of life. But this week, uh, we're going we're gonna to discuss uh, what the Bible is. Obviously, I can't say everything this morning. There's textbooks this thick about it. But uh, we're going to discuss uh, what the Bible is, because the truth is that, that we think, that what we think of the Bible determines how we'll approach the Bible. Right? What we think of the Bible determines how we'll approach the Bible and how often and so on and so forth. So we need to understand what it is. And, and to that end, 
Before the fourth century, uh, the parts of what we now call the Bible mainly existed just as scrolls or as, as letters, which were shared and circulated among the many churches. But for practical purposes, and, and because there were other documents circulating around as well, some of them being a little suspicious, some of them a lot suspicious, it, it was important for the early church to, to compile all the agreed-upon books into what we now call the Bible or biblical canon. Okay? So this took place mainly in the 5th century and, and, and included, uh, they decided that it would include the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. And throughout, the, throughout history, there have been a few books added in and taken back out and stuff like that. But uh, to be clear, the, the early church leaders didn't decide on this lightly. They weren't like, let's just throw a bunch of books together and call it the Bible. No, they didn't decide on it lightly. They had many qualifications for what books would be included in canon. And um, one, of, one of the main ones, one of the main requirements for a book or letter to be included as scripturally canon was that it needed to be inspired. It needed to be inspired. That is, each book needed to be proven to have been written by a prophet or an apostle or an amanuensis for them. Anyone know what an amanuensis is? I had to look that up. It's someone who, who dictates, like when someone dictates and then the other person writes it down, like a secretary, that's an amanuensis, okay? Um, I, I didn't know that until like four days ago, so I'm not trying to be smart here. Um, basically, though, the, the origin of the text needed to, be, needed to contain evidence that it came from someone who was a witness and conduit of the Word of God or of Jesus' teaching, okay? So, in other words, someone who was empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. This is also referred to as the doctrine of inspiration. Doctrine of inspiration. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, states it like this. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Every single author of parts of the Bible, this is what they would claim. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. In other words, while we believe that the Bible was written by humans with their unique personalities, literary styles, expressions, emotions, and, and contexts, we, we also believe that behind each author whom God created and formed for that moment was the Holy Spirit inspiring and directing their words. And, and what this, this doesn't mean that each person just became a robot and, and, and being controlled by God while they wrote it. Um, and neither does it mean that they were inspired in the same way that a, that a songwriter might be inspired to write a song about their lover or something like that. But rather, as, as John MacArthur writes, God literally selected the words out of each author's own life, out of their personality, vocabulary, and emotions. The words were man's words, but that man's life had been so framed by God that they were God's words as well. So, and this viewpoint is even how Jesus and, and the rest of the biblical authors view the Bible as well. In fact, Jesus, who is the Word become flesh, stated that he could only speak the truth that the Father gave him and also proclaimed that God's Word is truth and, and historically valid quite often and, and often quoted or referred to Scripture as God's words. Also, when we take a look at Psalm 119, which was read this morning, What's interesting is that King David, 
When, when referring to the parts of scriptures which Moses likely wrote, he doesn't write, Lord, when I look at the words and commandments Moses wrote. No, what does he write? He says, Lord, teach me your commandments, your statutes, your precepts, your rules, your testimonies. So he's seeing scripture as God's words, as God's, right? And, and in the Old Testament, over 3,800 times, I think the number is 3,808. I didn't count myself. But over 3,800 times, the authors of the Old Testament use, the form, use a form of the expression, thus says the Lord. Right? So over and over again, they claim unapologetically that their words were God's words. That they were speaking on behalf of God. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 confirms this idea when he writes, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I should mention that the word prophecy here doesn't just mean the prophets in the Old Testament. It refers to anyone who proclaims or dictates God's word directly from God. That's what a prophet does. Proclaims and dictates God's word directly from God. And this verse is saying that it wasn't their words but that they, they spoke God's words through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Bible was formed. Anyways, like I said earlier, there are huge books and, and tomes written on this subject, and, and I could go on for a while, but, but ultimately this, this idea is summed up for us in 2 Timothy 3.16-17, which states, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the breath of God, which implies the, the Spirit of God. Right? Meaning, again, that the words of Scripture are His words spoken to us through human authors in a way that we can relate to, so that we can know Him and be equipped by Him. The Bible is divine. So, so very, very quickly then, and inspired, let, very quickly then, let's talk about the implications of what the Bible being the, the Word of God means, or what the Word of God being inspired means. So, so for this, I have four points that I want to mention, and, and we'll gloss over them really quickly so that we're not here for three hours. Um, but if the Bible is the Word of God, first of all, that means that it's authoritative and true. It's authoritative and true. For us as believers, it's, it's our foundation for our doctrine and theology. That is concerning all things relating to who God is, the nature of sin and righteousness, his, his will and his plan of redemption, who we are and what he's commanded to us. Ultimately, this is how God primarily chose to reveal to us the truth, which, which also means we should approach Scripture by giving it that weight and reverence to acknowledge that what God says goes. It's not based on our, on our feelings or what we want him to say. That if it's authoritative, we come to scripture and say, Lord, what you say goes, right? Or as Jesus proclaims in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's how we should approach the word as, as the final word. 
Again, not that we shouldn't wrestle with it or, or ask good or intelligent questions about it. And of course, we should make sure we're understanding it correctly and all of that. But ultimately, we should submit to and follow its teaching in faith because of the very fact that its teaching comes from the one who created the universe and everything in it. So it's authoritative and, tr- and true. The second point is, is that if it's the word of God, that means it's alive and relevant. It's alive and relevant. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active. So it might be, might be easy to think that, that uh, because it's such an ancient book written in, in a much different context than we live today, uh, that the Bible, we might think that the Bible isn't relatable or applicable anymore, but, but this is far, far from the truth, as hopefully we'll discover o- over, the, over the summer. And millions of people can attest to, to their own experience that the words of Scripture are just as alive and life-giving and applicable and convicting and comforting and revealing and, and powerful and inspiring today as, as it was when it was first written. It's alive and it's active because God is still speaking through it. Because God is alive and he's still speaking through it. Therefore, we should approach it, approach Scripture with humility and with ears to hear and eyes to see that it can have an, its effect on us. So it's alive and relevant. A third point is that if it's the word of God, if it's inspired, that means that it's complete and inerrant. Complete and inerrant. For those of you who don't know the word inerrant, is just a fancy word for theologians and scholars to sound smart. No, I'm just kidding. It, it basically means that, that the Bible doesn't make mistakes. It's, it's exactly how God intended, intended it to be, which also means it's complete. In fact, there are many warnings throughout Scripture not to add to the law or to, or to add to the Bible. And this is because it's complete and sufficient and nothing needs to be added or, or taken away from it. Of course, when we say this, we're, we're referencing the original manuscripts and on that end, it's important then that, that when we use English translations, that, that we're using ones that are dedicated to being as accurate to the original text as possible. Uh, even still, we have to understand that, that some words or, or meanings can still be lost in translation. And so I'm thankful for scholars who, who continue to, to work diligently in getting us the most accurate texts in our own language and in languages throughout the world. It's amazing work that they do to get everyone a Bible, right? And on that note, what's amazing is that there continues to be archaeological finds of older biblical manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls or as, as well as secondary documents and locations and artifacts, which I've shared sometimes in my sermons, right, which, which keep corroborating and, and proving the accuracy of the Scriptures as we know them. And in the same vein, there have also been hundreds of fulfilled prophecies and, and more to come that, that continue to corroborate and prove the dif- divinity and accuracy of the Bible as God's divine word as well. Bottom line is that scripture is complete, it's abiding, and it's sufficient for all time as, 
as Peter again writes in 1 Peter 1, to 25, and he's quoting Isaiah. It's one, another one of those cross-references. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord remains forever. Nothing needs to be taken away from it or added to it. Which also means it's worth investing in above all else in this world. For everything else will fade and and rust and be destroyed and perish, except the word. The word of the Lord remains forever. That's worth investing in. All right, my fourth point is that if it's the word of God, we can only deeply comprehend it through the Holy Spirit. If the Bible was inspired by the Spirit, the breath of God, again, breath meaning spirit, then it only stands to make sense that it's only by the Spirit that we can truly or deeply know it and accept it and understand it. Right? 1 Corinthians 2, 9-14 to says, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So the Apostle's point here, among many other things, is, is simply that, yes, we can comprehend and grasp and be changed by the Word of God because we've been given the Spirit of God. Uh, as uh, authors Nigel Bainon and Andrew Satch write, on, on the other hand, all Christians can understand the Bible for themselves since all Christians have the Spirit. The role of our pastor or minister is not to tell us private secrets to which they alone have access, but to point us to the verses in front of us so that we see for ourselves what the Bible is saying. This is very liberating and exciting. All God's children have access to God's truth. All God's children have access to God's truth. That's incredible. And, and this, this doesn't mean that, that there won't be parts of Scripture that are still challenging and difficult to understand, but, but it does mean that, that with the Holy Spirit, we can open up the Bible ourselves to learn from it and grow in it. Besides, it's, it is important to note that the Bible is written, is written in a way that's sometimes meant to cause us to, to wrestle with its meaning. 
Sometimes that's the point. It's why Jesus taught in parables. And it's, why the wisdom, it's what the wisdom literature in, in the Old Testament is all about. And it's why not-so-nice actions of terrible people are also recorded in Scripture. It's, it's to cause us to wrestle with it. With its meaning and, and what it means to be human and, and who Jesus is and what it means to, to follow him and who God is and, and, and what, it, what it means to live in his kingdom and, and all of that fun stuff. Sometimes it's, it's meant to be wrestled with. Ultimately, though, this reminds us again of, of the importance to come to Scripture on our knees, metaphorically or literally, asking God in prayer to lead us into his truth through the Holy Spirit. All right, so we spent some time discussing how the Bible is the inspired word of God and, and what that means. But this morning, I also want to highlight the very important fact that the whole Bible points to and is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's incredibly important for us to grasp and understand that the Bible is about Jesus and his kingdom come. At one point during Jesus' ministry, some Jewish folks were, were questioning his authority, and he responds to them by saying in John 5, 39 and, and 46 and 47. Read all of John 5 if you want the whole context. But he says to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And then he says in, in 46 and 47, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And in another passage, after Jesus' resurrection, it says as he's walking with two of his disciples, Luke 24 to 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus saw himself as the focal point of scripture. I think, I think sometimes we often come to Scripture and say, where am I in this? And we put ourselves in, in David's shoes or whatever. But it's about Jesus. All Scripture points to him and to his role in ushering in the kingdom of God and saving the world from the power of sin and death through his own death and resurrection. In the same way, he also claimed that he was the fulfillment of scripture. Matthew 5:17 says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Jesus's viewpoint was that all scripture pointed to him, was about him, and that he'd come to fulfill it completely once for all and for the glory of God. This is why John calls him the word become flesh. Not only was he the word at the beginning, but he was and is the personification and consummation of the word of God. As author Von Roberts writes, God had always planned to send Jesus. The whole Bible points to him from beginning to end. In the Old Testament, God points forward to him and promises his coming in the future. In the New Testament, God proclaims him to be the one who fulfills all those promises. So we can see throughout the Bible, Jesus is present, he's predicted, he's promised, he's proclaimed, he's revealed, he's explained, and consummated. 
2 Corinthians 1.20 sums this all up when it says, For every one of God's promises is yes in him, in Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Everything is accomplished in Jesus. He's the very word the universe was created through. And he's the only one who can restore it. He came to earth as fully man and fully God, who lived a life of obedience which both Adam and the nation of Israel failed to do, completely fulfilling the law and then humbly and willingly exchanging his righteousness with sinners upon the cross, defeating sin and death in his own death and resurrection, so that all who believe in his name can be forgiven by grace and inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God as God's children. It's all about Jesus. He's the center of God's story of redemption, which is promised and realized in him and him alone. And we can even read in the, in the book of Acts and in all the epistles of the, of the New Testament that this is primarily what the, the apostles would go on to proclaim with boldness and passion after they're filled with the Spirit as well. That the whole of Scripture is pointing to and is about Jesus and his kingdom. And so when we come to the Scriptures in faith... This means we should not only be acknowledging that it's the authoritative and inspired word of God, but ultimately we should come to it with that Christocentric lens that is as one unified story that points to Jesus. Therefore, we should, we should constantly be asking God to reveal to us not only the meaning of the text within the context of the whole narrative of Scripture, but also how it both reveals Jesus Christ and how it can help us to know him and his loving and saving grace more deeply and fully. That's really the point of Scripture, to draw us closer to Jesus and the Father who sent him. Because he's the only one that that can rescue us from our sin guilt and change us and mold us into who we're created and called to be as his image bearers. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the the revelation and fulfillment of the living word. And the more deeply we know him through his word, the more deeply we'll be changed in his likeness and walk in his ways. As it says in Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Simply put, this is what the Bible is and what it's for, so that we can know and grow in the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen? So in conclusion, I just want to say this. Read your Bible. That's where we land on. And that's where we're going to land on in every message this summer. Read your Bible. And on that end, next week we're going to talk about how we can do that more effectively. So look forward to that. 